Once again, we have an opportunity to come before the Lord and humble ourselves under the teaching of His Word. So will you take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 21. We pick up once again our verse-by-verse study of this historical count written by the inspired writer Dr. Luke. We come this morning to a very fascinating passage of Scripture that once again exposes the irrational rage that so often motivated the Jews when they heard the gospel of grace, when they heard God's apostles speaking to them. This is the kind of violence that frankly, lies dormant in the hearts of every man because all men are at enmity with God. We know, according to Romans 8 and verse 7, that the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. While men love the gods of their own making, They hate the one true God. And whether it's the first century Jew or even the Gentile idolater or a 21st century Mormon or Muslim or Jehovah's Witness or any other cult member or part of a false religion, those who have fallen victim to some form of works righteousness system make themselves vulnerable to this very thing because what they have done is created a God of their own making, one that they can manipulate so that they, through their own works, can be acceptable to Him. And these kind of people will inevitably resort to violence, at least in their heart, if not for real, when confronted with the gospel of grace. Because people absolutely hate being told that they are filled with sin, that they are under divine condemnation, that the wrath of God will fall upon them unless they repent. They hate being told that they're utterly helpless to save themselves. They hate being told that all of their righteousnesses are like filthy rags, as the scripture tells us that they are totally dependent upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the message of the cross and the gospel of grace is exceedingly offensive to man because he is filled with self-righteous pride and especially religious people often adorn themselves with the sanctimonious garments of religious hypocrisy. And this morning we are going to see again the response of those enslaved by these kinds of religious delusions. We're going to examine in chapter 21, beginning in verse 27, a riotous, I should say a riot of slanderous zealots. That's the first thing that will emerge in this scene. A riot of slanderous zealots. And then, as we go on, we're going to see, secondly, the Roman intervention and arrest of the Apostle Paul. 
And then we're going to see, thirdly, Paul's defense and his testimony. And finally, as we move into chapter 22, we're going to see the Jews' self-righteous violence contrasted with Paul's selfless love. Now, I believe the Holy Spirit would have you join me this morning in examining more than the mere history of this particular text, but also to examine the hallmarks of hypocrisy, even as they may apply in our own lives. First of all, let's notice this riot of slanderous zealots as we look beginning in verse 27. And here we will see this violent hatred that flows from the poison well of self-righteous hypocrisy. Now, before we look at verse 27, may I remind you of the context? It's been a couple of weeks now since we were in the text. Paul was completing a seven day process of purification that would make him ceremonially clean to be able to participate with four other men who were completing their commitment to a Nazarite vow. And you will recall that James and the elders there at the Church of Jerusalem had suggested that he do this, hopefully to silence the growing false accusations by the Judaizers in particularly that he was teaching that you need to abandon the law of Moses and that Everything that we have been doing as Jews is all wrong and evil, including our customs and and the law is no good, etc., etc. So a riot of slanderous zealots. Verse 21. And when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the multitude and laid hands on him. Now, these Jews from Asia would have been uh, Hellenistic Jews, most likely from Ephesus. They would be there in Jerusalem celebrating um, the Feast of Passover. And they, as you will see, are very familiar with Paul. They've seen him before. They resent him. They hate him. Verse 28. So they cry out, men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people. In other words, he's anti-Semitic and he preaches against the law. And remember now, the, the law of Moses is what they held dear. And he's teaching against this place. In other words, the temple. This is the habitation of God himself. And then they go on. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Verse 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, friends, all of these things were lies. If you think just here about uh, in verse 29 about the issue of Trophimus, we know that the Romans had had given uh, the Jews the right to execute any Gentile who dared enter past the court of the Gentiles. And so if he had gone in there, why wasn't he executed? I mean, this is easily, easily dismissed with the facts. So this was slander. Isn't it interesting? These people are zealous for the very law of God. And yet within their hearts, they are men that are absolutely consumed with pride and hatred. 
Such is always the mark of hypocrisy. Not an ounce of truth in these accusations. But, dear friends, people mad with the delusions of spirituality are always very, very volatile. They have a short fuse. The slightest spark of exposure can result in a catastrophic explosion. We know this to be true even today. If you go to Israel, there's increasing violence from the Orthodox Jews against Christians. And there's many other examples. Remember, not too long ago, there was a Danish cartoonist who drew a picture, I I believe, of, of Muhammad. And, of course, this absolutely infuriated the Muslim world. And there were riots and threats of assassinations and so forth. Well, we've even witnessed this type of thing in the church. So this is not uncommon with hypocrites. Verse 30, and all the city was aroused and the people rushed together and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. Now, any good Bible student is always going to say, I wonder why the spirit of God would have Luke. Include and immediately the doors were shut. Well, it's a great question. And the answer is to underscore the absolute insanity of hypocrisy. Let me explain what I mean. You see, the temple guards here would have been the ones that closed the door. And the door that they're referring to or the doors that they're referring to here are the doors between the court of the women and the court of the Gentiles. And you see. They wanted to close these doors because they wanted to protect the temple from being defiled by Paul's soon-to-be corpse. Isn't that amazing? The double standards inherent in sham religions absolutely defies the limits of the imagination. Legalists live, frankly, in a mythical world of religious superiority, that, that can justify any act, no matter how irrational. Hurry up, shut the doors. We don't want this man to be killed in here because that would defile the temple and bring dishonor to God. So beat him to death out there. Here these slanderous zealots of the law incite their brethren to kill the Lord's apostle. Literally, they're trying to beat him to death. But friends, like a grizzly with cubs... Hypocrisy will always resort to violence when threatened by exposure. That's just the nature of the beast. In fact, think how quickly we lash out. And anyone who in any way dares to unmask some religious charade that we're putting on. Think of the last time you exploded in such anger. I bet if you're honest, you can look and see that somehow, in some way, some religious mask was peeled off. And to be sure, as I have said, I've seen men and women in the name of who have named the name of Christ act with equal rage when their masquerade is ripped off. Well, we move to another scene here. From the riot of these slanderous zealots to, secondly, the Roman intervention and arrest of Paul. And here, may I remind you that we see the fulfillment of Agabus's prophecy 
in chapter 21, verses 10 and 11. Remember when he took Paul's belt and, and, and bound his feet and his hands, demonstrating what was going to happen to Paul when he went to Jerusalem. Verse 31. And while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Now, a Roman cohort was uh, a group of 1,000 soldiers, and they were stationed there in Jerusalem at Fort Antonia. If uh, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, or if you ever go to Jerusalem, you can still see that fortress. It overlooks that temple area so that they, the Romans could kind of keep guard on what's going on. And we also know, according to Acts chapter 23, verse 26, that the name of this commander is Claudius Lysias. And again, he was a commander, Achilliarchos in Greek. He was the leader of 1,000 men. Verse 32, and at once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts on account of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he got to the stairs, it so happened that he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following behind, crying out, away with him. So God rescues Paul from certain death by arousing the Roman troops. And I find it amusing that the Romans, as we are going to see, are quite certain that they are about to capture an Egyptian revolutionary and false prophet who, according to ancient historians, had some years earlier preached that the walls of Jerusalem were going to come down and that the um, at his own command and that uh, the Romans were going to be vanquished and so on. In fact, in verse 38, we read that they are called assassins. Uh, Zicarion is the term used is derived from the Latin word sicca, which is the word for dagger. And these were literally terrorists. And this man led these terrorists. And what they would do is they would mingle with the Jews, especially at times of of their feasts and, and celebrations. And they would kind of get up close to them and take these daggers and stab them and kill them. And then they would pretend to mourn like all the rest of them so that they could Avoid being discovered. And evidently, according to history, the the Romans had attacked uh, all of these people and his followers and killed and captured several hundred of them. But most of them escaped, as we see here in verse 38, about 4000 had escaped into the wilderness, including the Egyptian. So because of the frenzied, bloodthirsty mob, the Romans now have to secure the situation. They have to escort Paul to a safer place so that they could interrogate him. And they're thinking in their minds, we've got this Egyptian terrorist. So notice this third scene. Now, Paul's defense and testimony, beginning in verse 37. And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. 
So in other words, obviously, you're not this guy. Verse 39, but Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. And I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. Isn't this interesting? I wonder what he wants to do. Wonder if he wants to stand before those people and curse them and give them down the road for their wickedness. But no, what he wants to do, dear friends, is he wants to present the gospel to them. He wants to give them his testimony. It's amazing as you think about it. Paul would now be, I'm sure, experiencing a great deal of pain, having just been beaten. And despite this wicked behavior, Paul's love compelled him to use this opportunity to call, call his brethren to Christ. What a living and powerful testimony of his love, not his hatred for his Jewish kinsmen. So the Romans now are going to allow him to speak. And I'm sure they were wondering, oh, what is this guy going to say? Because we're trying to figure out what is going on with all of this chaos. Who is this guy? So beginning in verse 40. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, Brethren and fathers, Hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. And I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them, I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. And it came about that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who art thou, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me beheld the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked up at him and he said, 
The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So this is his testimony to the Jews. I want to digress for just a moment to explain something here before we go back to the story. Verse 16 is a verse that is frequently used to support a grievous error held by many That of baptismal regeneration, the idea that you must be baptized in order to be saved. Because the verse says that Ananias said to him, and now why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Just briefly, may I explain to you that grammatically in the original language, the phrase wash away your sins is linked to the phrase calling on his name, not the phrase be baptized. If you try and connect the phrase wash away your sins with be baptized, then the participle here, the word calling, uh, epikolosomenos, it would have no antecedent. There, There would be no preceding object. And so you can't do that grammatically. So literally, it could be interpreted this way. Arise, get yourself baptized and your sins washed away, having called on his name. Beloved, here, as in Romans chapter six, that whole passage in verses four through six, where baptism is is that marvelous picture of death and burial and resurrection. Likewise, here in this text, baptism illustrates the cleansing of grace It illustrates the washing away of sins by the blood of Christ that has already occurred in his life. The ordinance of baptism is a glorious symbol that expresses a purification that only the Lord, not man, could ever perform. You see, Paul's sins, you must understand this, were not washed away by baptism, but by calling on the name of the Lord. And it's for this reason As Paul had written a little bit earlier before this particular scenario, when he wrote his letter to the Romans in chapter 10 of Romans, verse 13, where he he quotes Joel 2.32, Paul said, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, not whoever gets baptized. And in Romans 3.28, we know, as Paul said, that We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And in Romans 10, 8 through 10, this is the word of faith, he says, which we are preaching. All right. Catch this. This is what we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. There's no hint of baptismal regeneration here. Remember in Acts 10, even, when Peter 
ordered Cornelius and his household to be baptized, baptized. That happened after the Holy Spirit had given evidence that they were truly saved. And there are many other arguments to that end. But I just wanted to explain that lest you be deceived. Now, back to Paul's testimony. If we go to verse 17 of chapter 22, and it came about when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in thee. And when the blood of thy witness, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the cloaks of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And they listened to him up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. In other words, the commander couldn't understand what's going on. This was all just so bizarre. And so he was going to torture him to get the truth out of him, torture him by scourging the Greek term flagellum. It was a referred to a kind of a, a billy club looking stick. And on the end, it had a number of of leather cords. And on the end of those cords were pieces of, of bone and metal. That would rip open the flesh. Verse 25. And when they stretched him out with thongs. Let me stop there. Beloved, this just exposes again the absolute depravity and wickedness of man. Literally what the Romans would do, as they indicate here, is they would stretch you out with leather with these leather thongs so that you would be like a big X just hanging there so that you would be stripped down completely naked and your body would be completely tense and tight and taut. And that would be hard enough just to endure the excruciating agony. I don't know if you've ever hung like this for very long, but it's excruciating to every joint. And in the midst of all of that, as your skin is stretched tight and all of your muscles are flexed to try to survive just hanging there. Those horrible tongs would would come around and would rip open your flesh. And many times people would die from a scourging because of the loss of blood. Sometimes literally their entrails would come out. And if they didn't die from that, many times they would die from the infection that would ensue. So this is what they are preparing to do now to the beloved apostle. Verse 25, and when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? 
And of course, Paul knew the answer to that. And so did the Roman. It's completely illegal to do that to a Roman citizen. And when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, what are you about to do? This man is a Roman. And the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. And the commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. Now, we don't know exactly what motivated him to say this or what he actually meant. It might be a statement of relief or it might be one of sarcasm. He might be saying, boy, am I glad I found out. I'm glad you said something, because if I were to scourge you, I could not only lose my citizenship that I bought with a large sum of money, but I might lose my life. Or he might be saying it sarcastically. (laughs) My goodness, I don't believe this. You, some kind of a scoundrel, you're a Roman citizen, and yet I had to pay all the money that I paid to become one, which, by the way, was common in those days. Well, we really don't know what he meant by this. The text doesn't tell us, but we do know Paul's response. Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let him let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman. And because he had put him in chains. You see, this was illegal to do. There was no due process here legally. There was no preliminary hearing. And so they could be in serious, serious trouble. So they released him. Now, friends, as I reflected upon this whole scene, I found myself being intrigued once again with the violence of hypocrisy and how it explodes from a legalistic hypocrite or a group of them when ignited by a spark of truth. And as I think about it, hypocrisy is always fueled with an angry pride. You see, the hypocrite is always on duty trying to impress others with his masquerade. He lives in constant fear that he might be unmasked. As James 1.8 says, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And you see, the hypocrite must constantly silence his accusing conscience by inventing more and more rules to adhere to. Because, you see, he knows that within there's no real substance to his spirituality. And it eats at him. It gnaws at him. So he finds something else that he can do externally to prove to himself and to others that he has been reconciled to God. And he must be ever vigilant to hunt down the speck in someone else's eye. Despite the large beam that protrudes from his own. We are told that in the last days, hypocrites will abound. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 2, Paul later wrote, saying, speaking that they will be speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. In other words, as you live out your masquerade, 
as a hypocrite. The more you do that, the more you silence that conscience as if it has been seared with a hot iron. As if we would, for example, take a hot iron and sear our flesh and thus destroy the nerves and its ability to in any way communicate truth to our brains. You will recall that Jesus reserved his most stinging rebukes for hypocrites. You see this all through the gospel. And this was a sin that particularly defined the character of the Jews. In fact, in Luke 12 and verse 1, Jesus said, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Leaven always symbolized that which influences. And he's saying, beware of how the Jewish leaders will influence you with their teachings that focus on external rules and regulations and ceremonies rather than matters of the heart. Look out for that. And in Matthew 23, we can read how Jesus describes a number of hallmarks of hypocrisy as he unmasked those phony leaders of Israel repeatedly in Matthew 23. He calls them hypocrites and warned about their counterfeit spiritual authority and the judgment to come. But the Jews paid no attention for the most part. May I remind you of some of the things he said in Matthew 23, and perhaps we can all see ourselves here in this condemnation. He said that they seated themselves in the chair of Moses. In other words, they were self-appointed authorities. They seated themselves. Though they were very well educated, they were untrained. They were unqualified. They were doctrinally illiterate when it came to the truths of Scripture. He tells us in Matthew 23 that they didn't even practice what they preached. He said that they say things and do not do them. He tells us that the hypocrites lacked compassion. They would weigh men down with ridiculous rules and regulations. He talks about how they were religious show-offs. He said they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. You might recall that the phylacteries were these, these, little, these little boxes with a leather strap that they would put around their head and the box would be on their forehead and also on their wrist. And inside the little box would be portions of the law from Deuteronomy. And as hypocrisy goes, the more you try to show off your spirituality, the more internally you know you don't have it. So what do you do? You broaden your phylactery. And that's what they would do. Finally, those boxes got to be where they covered up pretty much the whole forehead. Big boxes on the arms. Oh, look how spiritual I am. And Jesus said they also lengthened the tassel of their garments. Those tassels would be uh, the, the symbols of their order of profession. They wanted everybody to see that. He described how they loved their ostentatious religious garb. We see that today. And modern day Pharisees with all of their little robes and hats and 
all of the collars and tassels and shoes. You see that especially in the Pharisaism of Roman Catholicism. In fact, in Matthew 6, we read even more about how they would show off religiously. Jesus said that when you do your alms, you sound a trumpet. He says, don't do that. When you do your alms, don't sound a trumpet before you like the hypocrites in the synagogues and in the streets. And he went on to say how that they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the corner of the streets that they may be seen by men. He said that when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance. They disfigure their faces that they may appear to fast. So they would put on this. Terrible for a face, look like they're having a gallbladder attack so that everybody could look at them and say, oh, my, he's been fasting. What a godly man. Back to Matthew 23, Jesus said that they were basically arrogant. They're temperamental. Hypocrites are easily offended. Prima donnas that demand privileged treatment. And then when they don't get it, they respond in petulance. He says they love the place of honor at banquets, the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and to be called by men rabbi. They love those titles. Jesus said that the hypocrite wants to be served, not to serve. They exalt themselves. They criticize others. But, oh, they're so religious. Jesus said that woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, in verse 23, Of Matthew 23, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Can you imagine that they would take the little seeds of of mint and dill and they would lay them out? You'd almost have to have a microscope to see them. And they would count out a tenth of them to give to the Lord. Verse 24, he said, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. I mean, this is the extent that it goes to, dear friends. You can never find enough to somehow silence your conscience completely and make yourself believe that you're really reconciled to God. The Pharisees would literally take fine pieces of linen, and they would put that over their drinks, and then they would pour their wine into it in hopes to somehow strain out any gnats or any little bugs that might get in there, because those would be the smallest of unclean animals. Can't have that. Oh, I would never offend God in such a way. And the Lord said, basically, in so doing, what you do is you swallow a camel's worth of self-righteous pride, which leaves you bloated with condemnation. So this was the kind of leadership that had so profoundly influenced the Jews. Arrogant, self-righteous hypocrites. Now, imagine, imagine preaching the gospel of grace to these kinds of folks. Imagine telling them that you are so filled with sin, you can't even see it. That there is absolutely nothing that you can do to save yourself. The only thing you can do is cry out for mercy from Jesus of Nazareth, who was the Son of God, whom you crucified. 
Boy, that's going to go over like a pork chop at a bar mitzvah. It's not going to work. And it enraged the Jews. It infuriated the, the hypocrites. Now, friends, in order to understand this, mix in to this whole seething cauldron of resentment, the Judaizers. These were the ones now who had broke ranks with their fellow Jews and they identified themselves as followers of Jesus and part of the church. But they really weren't saved because they didn't understand the gospel of grace. The Orthodox Jews hated them, hated them. Many of their own family members considered them blasphemers. And so what would they do? Well, they had to somehow compromise They would basically say, yes, we embrace Jesus as Messiah, but we want to make sure everybody's happy here. So we were are going to also add the law to the gospel of grace. So you got to keep the law. You got to be circumcised and on and on and on it goes. And for this reason, Paul had earlier written his epistle to the Galatians, arguing that salvation is purely by grace alone due to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ On the cross of Calvary, that he was the propitiation for our sins. In fact, Galatians is sometimes called the crucifixion epistle. Paul, you might recall in writing to the Galatians, was filled with righteous indignation. I mean, not only was he getting it from the Jews, but also these Judaizers that Satan had placed into the church, these tares inside the church who were confusing everyone with their counterfeit gospel of keeping the law and being circumcised and salvation by works, not by grace and so on. And this will always be the hallmark of a false teacher, of a hypocrite. So these people became a target of their families and friends. They wanted to somehow stay close to the law and compromise a little bit so that they could win favor with their friends. And that's why in Galatians 6, 12, Paul said that these are the ones who desire to make a good showing in the flesh. They try to compel you to be circumcised simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, friends, this is why Paul was so hated. You see, the core of his argument and the core of his message, certainly the core of his argument in Galatians was the cross, the most hideous, offensive form of execution to the Jews. It was utterly repulsive to them because it symbolized the very wickedness of the Romans, the barbaric nature of the Gentiles. And it was even more inconceivably odious to them to think that they were being accused of crucifying their very own Messiah. So when the cross was preached, it always resulted in fury. You see that in Acts 5, Acts 13, Acts 14, all through Acts. Again, beloved, the reason is because the cross reveals the depth of our sinfulness. It reveals our utter inability to save ourselves. It reveals the need for God, the sovereign Savior, to do something on our behalf. What a profound blow to man's pride and his sense of of dignity and self-determination. And even to this day, 
when you preach the gospels of grace or the gospel of grace, when you preach about the sovereignty of God and salvation, you experience very often the same type of hostility. When you preach the cross and all that it means. We find people reacting in anger. But dear friends, what a man does with the cross determines the destiny of his soul. So he unmasked the Jews and the Judaizers with all of their with all of their rules and regulations that they had concocted to somehow bolster their perceived spirituality and give them a false sense of assurance. Now, as we close here this morning, may I apply this to our lives a bit? I believe this light of exposure might expose us as well. I believe there are hypocrites here in this church. We know biblically that there are always tares amongst the wheat. There will always be an Iscariot around the true believers. There will always be an Ananias and a Sapphira. Those filled with spiritual pride, those that like to show off spiritually, is that you? Are you one that glories in your flesh, not in the cross? Are you the type that loves the applause of man and you will exhaust yourself to receive it? But you have no desire to discipline yourself for the sake of godliness. No motivation to cultivate a secret devotion to God. Oh, you will argue your pet doctrines. You will argue them with tenacity. But you have no stomach to serve the needy. You're too important to serve in obscurity. You know who you are. You're too spiritual to meditate on the word. You're too intellectual to study and believe the scriptures. Oh, you're too busy, too important to pray in secret. You're too godly to mourn over your sin. You're too mature to be taught. You will strain at a gnat by avoiding some Sabbatarian defilement that you have arbitrarily transported from the law or strain at the gnat of some legalistic calculation of how you're supposed to give your tithe or strain at a gnat by some legalistic perversion of grace regarding baptism and on and on it goes. And in so doing, you swallow a camel as you condemn others. For not doing the same thing and being as godly as you are. How often the hypocrite is harsh on others yet lenient on himself. The hypocrite, and maybe this is you, can somehow sit through a thundering sermon that will shake the very foundations of a saint. And yet their conscience will not be moved in any way. How sad the same son that softens the wax, hardens the clay. Like the scribes and Pharisees, you're kind of a self-appointed authority. Your private life does not reflect your public image. Yours is a Sunday morning religion. You know who you are. You may be a visible leader in the church, but your private life is a contradiction to your profession of faith. You have to say in honesty, do as I say, not as I do. 
You lack compassion for those struggling in sin. There's no understanding in your heart of Galatians 6, 1, where Paul said, if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Restores the idea, katartizo is the idea of, 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 it's a term used to surgically setting a bone that has been broken. You don't see that. You don't want to restore people in a spiritual, in a, in a spirit of gentleness. He goes on to say, bear one another's burdens of sin. You don't want to do that. Meaning, literally get under somebody else's burden of sin and lovingly, patiently help them as they struggle through it. And thus fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love. You're arrogant, you're temperamental, you're easily offended, you insist upon being treated in some special way. You know who you are. You want to be served. You don't really want to serve. You're quick to criticize others. While you've got a beam as big as a telephone pole sticking out of your eye. And yet somehow you can see the tiniest splinter in your brother's eye. You're a chameleon Christian. You blend in in every crowd. No distinction, no separation. Indeed, you know who you are. You don the robes of righteousness in the company of the saints. And yet, you quickly exchange them for the rags of the world when in the company of sinners. Yes, yes, pastor, I admit. I admit that, well, you know, there are externals for which I am ashamed. But you must understand that my heart is right. Beloved, I don't have stupid written across my forehead, and certainly God doesn't. Are you trying to tell me that a good tree will produce bad fruit? Spurgeon said so poignantly, and I quote, when man, or when men take their fruit to market, they cannot make their customers believe if they see rotten apples at the top, that there are good ones at the bottom. A man's outward conduct is generally a little bit better than his heart. Very few men sell better goods than they put in the window. End quote. My friend, if these things describe you, and if you know in your heart that you are a, a miserable pretender, then I know that you live in fear of constant exposure. And whenever the light of truth shines on you, and maybe you feel like that right now, you're, you're, you're kind of like a cockroach that we see in the middle of the night when we flip the light on. You want to run for cover. Well, dear friends, make no mistake about it. God sees that. There's nothing that escapes His sight. Please understand that He is not impressed by your profession, nor is He deceived by the way you hoodwink other people, he sees the truth of your heart. And unless you confess your charade and turn from it in repentance, someday God is going to expose you. Let me remind you of this great truth. And it's one that should sober every one of us. This is what's going to happen to the hypocrite one day before the great white throne judgment. That throne that is pure and holy. We read about it in Revelation 20. If you were a hypocrite, 
You may fool me, you won't fool God. And someday we know that you will be raised from the dead along with all the sinners down through history. There's a resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the unjust. And you will stand before a holy God as a condemned prisoner, along with untold millions like you who refused to repent and who lived a sham life. And you will stand there, my friend, in inexpressible horror before the divine bar of justice and receive your sentence. We know according to Scripture that heaven and earth would have already passed away. There's no place for you to stand except in the presence of God completely bare. No place to hide. And according to Scripture, God is going to open up a record of every thought, every word, every deed that you have ever done. And your secrets will be revealed and testify against you. The sham will be over someday, dear friends. And in Revelation 20 and verse 12, we read that the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Dear friends, I, I don't know how else I can say it, but I plead with you to examine your heart. And if your profession is empty, if your religion is a sham, I beg you to repent while there is still time. Don't react in violence to my words or to the words that flow from Scripture like the Jews did. Like so many people do. God's grace awaits you. I plead with you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Put your trust in Him, not your own works. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that the Gospel has the power to penetrate even the most hardened, rebellious, recalcitrant heart. And Lord, so often the layers of our hypocrisy render us powerless to respond to your truth apart from your regenerating work. And even in the life of those who know you, Lord, so often we can see the splinter in our brother's eye, but we can't see the log in our own. Lord, as we reflect upon all that happened here in Acts in the life of the Apostle Paul and the way the hypocrites responded with such violence, Lord, may we apply his humility and his love to our lives and likewise examine our hearts in light of the hypocrisy that fuels such hatred. Lord, thank You for Your mercy. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for the truth of Your Word. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, 
or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.